You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. We've got the kiln fired up. We've got the furnace prepped. We're about to unsheath the laser fire of Torah. Yes, Rizcha Daraisa is coming your way. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card, and you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, Feebuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic, and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay Feebuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. If it's Erev Shabbos Kodesh, this must be Rizchal Daraisa. I'm here with Rizchal Gabriel Bechofel. And although both of us uh, have the schools, I think, to sit on one of the most important botedinim in the United States, neither of us are really um, constitutional lawyers or are experts in constitutional law. Uh, we play Dayonim when we are called on. But Rabbi Yosef Gavriel feels that with the flurry of piskidin of decisions that are coming out of the Supreme Court over the last couple of days as they try to, uh, I guess, wind up the session in order to go off on vacation, it's coming out fast and furious. Let's start with the easy one. Let's start with the Agudas championing of the uh, ruling in the case of Graf against the uh, United States Postal Service. So this is not the Graf Patotsky that, that died al Kiddush Hashem. This is Gerald Graf. Graf was a religious Christian, and he refused to work on Sundays. And he refused, even though he was doing the important, noble work of a mail carrier, he understood that he shouldn't work on Sundays. He's against religiously transporting and doing business. He believes in keeping his Sabbath. And because of that, after he did everything he could, he transferred himself out to various rural stations where, where they wouldn't work on Sunday. It turns out, by the way, Jeff Bezos is a little bit of the, of the villain here because Amazon is so demanding and they want, everybody wants to get their, their boxes. So the United States Postal Service, which has been running basically as a hobbled, crippled institution for years, says, listen, if we can work with Bezos, of course we're going to work with them, and we're going to work on Sundays. And that, of course, led to Graf having to work on Sundays once uh, he uh, he refused, and he, uh, he felt this was against his religion. And because of that, in this little postal area that he was working with the other six or seven workers, they felt that he was ruining morale there and other things, and they they disciplined him, and eventually they dismissed him, and he filed suit. 
against the United States Postal Service and the Postmaster General for, interestingly, for a violation of the Civil Rights Clause of 1964, which says one cannot discriminate on the basis of many things about uh, race and religion. And it was he felt he was being discriminated because of his adherence to his strict interpretation of the Christian Sabbath. Right. So if, if, if the job had required him to work on Shabbos because it was in the natural interest of some sort, or he was irreplaceable, they would have been able to get away with it. But uh, since, you know, any post worker, I guess, can choose which, whatever six days a week he wants. So therefore they, you know, they should have made an accommodation. Well, basically it had to do with the fact that they, the lower court ruled against him based on years and years of precedent saying that it's considered undue hardship for the employer, even if there's some sort of minimal loss. And as long as they could show some loss and some aspect for years, and this is the way it's been argued uh, since Hardison was also, by the way, uh, a, a Gert Sedek from Kansas City who sued TWA. And that was, I think, in the 70s. Since that time, there has been this legal battle to say that, yes, you were not discriminating against you, but it costs us more money if you're here. We have to have somebody else instead. So anything that's considered a an accommodation that generates a loss was up until this Supreme Court decision considered uh, within the bounds of the Civil Rights Act. This overturned it. And of course, as the Aguda Cicero points out in their proclamation, as it was yesterday, that one of the unsung heroes, or maybe not so unsung, he's actually been sung about quite a bit, was Nat Lewin. Nat Lewin, uh, who I had discussed uh, to interview, has been fighting for this for years. He helped write the amicus brief uh, as a friend of the court. And he definitely is one of the greatest constitutional lawyers uh, alive. Of course, it was his, he's been his contention this whole time. Uh, by the way, I just want to point out before we get to the contentious one, this was a unanimous decision. So nobody's going to say that this was, uh, the right wingers, the conservatives. This was correcting a wrong. And I think here in Rispa, I, I did, again, I, most of us who live in the Northeast and live in big Jewish neighborhoods, we don't know about discrimination for Shabbos workers, but it seems like it is a problem, uh, in other places in the country about people taking jobs and being afraid to uh, take jobs uh, because of what's going to be entailed. What's going on in Memphis? Were most of the workers in McClellan Shabbos when you were growing up? You, you always, everyone's going to think that this is, this is the, this is basically not Rizka de Raisa. This is, this is our prairie home companion with Garrison Keeler. We're talking about today and obviously growing, we all, we can go back with stories of the beginning of the 20th century and how many Jews had to be machal shops. I think we've talked about it. Uh, we've talked about yeah. the minyanim. We've talked about the hashkom minyanim of machal shabbos. Yes, of course. It, it, it is, it, but this is clearly the nail in the coffin. It, 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 this is a very important ruling. And I, again, I'm surprised that they're still fighting this, but it's clear that this was not something that anybody should really complain about. There's been so many, let's put it this way, there's been so many accommodations made for alternative lifestyles and other things. It would seem that Baruch Hashem, we finally got an accommodation for somebody who's willing to put the hours in, but just doesn't want to violate his Sabbath. Now, you told me about there's another case, which I didn't read up about. Before we get to the one that we really want to talk about, you said there's another case now that the Supreme Court just upheld about... Um, I think it's actually web design, this case. 
this is not about this is not about cre- uh, serving a cake or or baking a wedding cake for a gay wedding. What is this about? I think it's web design for a homosexual website. And the question is, could the web designer be sued for discrimination for refusing to work for them? The ruling was the um, U.S. Supreme Court rules in favor of a Christian web design business owner refuses to provide services for same-sex weddings. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, this not by the way, is not so partial because, um, you know, in this case, the uh, uh, question is where, you know, so obviously some anti-Semite can say, I'm not going to design a website for a Jew. No, no. You know what? Don't you believe that the market will tell the story? I mean, do we have to go chase every ridiculous anti-Semite because he doesn't want to deal with you? Not today. I don't think today, but someday it might be necessary. Even though I'm being a champion here for private entrepreneurship and working, every private entrepreneur has the benefit of the country's laws protecting him, protecting his business and other things. So therefore, you you can believe what you want in your home. And you can decide you don't want to invite someone in your house because they're black or because they're Jewish or because they're gay. But once you go into the public sphere where you are benefiting from the public taxes and everything else that allows that street that your store is on, so then you don't have a right to discriminate. The Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964, Memphis and Muscatine, that went into effect, states that no businesses... Business, public or private, certain public can discriminate based upon a customer's national origin, sex, religion, color, or race. And, and, and the reason why the federal government has rights to that because it is it is a business. So so now I guess you know when we talk about uh, this case where the web designer, who in a way although is a virtual business but it is a business, still benefits from the government, from the fact that the government is there to help regulate and etc. You know, when he discriminates and says he does not want to do something that violates his religion, here the question is you have two different aspects here. One aspect is discrimination against gender or whatever. Or the second thing is this violates his religious code. His religious code is that this is an abomination. And therefore, any. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. It doesn't, doesn't violate anybody's religious code. Let's make this clear. It's not Leif Naver, it's not Messiah. Because the, the Nazis what, don't have what, an Instagram. One second, a gay Instagram. website is not Messiah? For us, we have an Instagram Messiah the Rabbana. They don't have an Instagram the Rabbana Messiah. But, but they, one second, they have a right to interpret their religion the way they, we're not, we're saying that whoever, that website. Well, designed, if you don't have an Instagram Messiah, right? Uh, one second, he's not, his guru is not Yosef Gabriel Bechafer. His guru is his reverend, is his priest, whoever that is, who's telling him, you can't promote immorality. And this is immoral. And therefore, designing a website, especially that will appeal to children or to others and will convince people that maybe they are gay, whatever it is, that would be uh, an Avera, so to speak, quote unquote, according to his religion. So, you know, it sounds like the Supreme Court's on the right, uh, is doing the right thing over here. Let's get to the one that's the one you wanted to talk about. Our listeners all know that aspects of affirmative action are prevalent in many, many spheres spheres of hiring, spheres of giving placements in jobs. And also, specifically here, it was about colleges in terms of placement. This affirmative action had, for years, granted, in this case, a guaranteed place for minorities, specifically Blacks, to be able to be represented in the universities, I guess, in a way 
that aligns with the general percentage of the population, which means that in these universities, Harvard was one of them, that there should be at least, at least this is what the claim, that there was a quota, there should be about 13 or 14 percent of black students in the school. And it was interesting, of course, that the lawsuit was brought by the students for fair admissions. And they actually incorporated themselves, and they were basically a, a student group primarily made up of Asian students who were, they felt, the victim of discrimination, of racial discrimination. Their grades and their test scores on SATs and other things should have meant that they would have gotten admission to Harvard. But because other students who did not score as well as they did, but were only granted that place for them in Harvard because of their skin color, they were given preferential treatment because of their race, and other students who were not black were not able to get that treatment, were not able to get what they believed they deserved and what they earned. This was a six to three decision. John Roberts authored the decision, and I did not see it inside, but I heard from uh, many people who did that it was extremely detailed and it, it, it offered charts to prove that this was a quota system. Now, Rabbi Yosef Gabriel, does this bother you? How does this sit with you? Well, what do you what, what do you think in halacha? Is there is in halacha? Would we say that there's any obstacle to affirmative action without politics? I don't see it in halacha that there would be any obstacle to affirmative action. We felt that this is a form of communal chesed to people who have been deprived. Either of I would think it's a mitzvah, right? Well, let's take a look. What would be an example? Well, we know the rabbanon get rabbanon get preferential treatment all the time. I know it's not. Covetary is different, but like they don't pay taxes, they don't have to go out and they. But that's not affirmative action. That is actually the opposite. That is that everyone should recognize the significance of what Rabbanan do. It's not that we need to do a corrective. The affirmative action is a corrective to a, a kilkul. In other words, the oilam is makulkul. The oilam is makulkul because uh, blacks have been denied a place in society that they need. They haven't been able to ascend the ladder of higher education properly because of the uh, the way the white community enslaved them and then forced them into ghettos and didn't allow them the, the proper education. So therefore, we need to do whatever we can to redress this, this wrong that has been put upon them. Right, so uh, it sounds like a very ethical thing to do, and I don't see why... And from a terrorist perspective, we wouldn't do say that. We the Torah believe in hierarchical treatment. You're right. There's, there's, there is hierarchical treatment based on uh, superior status, and here's hierarchical treatment based on prior inferior status. But it's the same principle. You're saying that something seems to be unfair in order to bring out a point. So you're saying this is unfair. You agree. You agree with the with the Asian students that it is unfair that they were denied a place, but for the greater good of the of, of the country, recognizing something. Now, the, the argument here, by the way, is also that it hasn't been a positive for the blacks either. As you know, that many of the of the black students who were accepted to Harvard, MIT, and the other universities did not matriculate, did not graduate, and in many ways felt depressed 
and downtrodden when they had to compete with students who had had a better education and a better background. So the idea of sort of like placing these students in Harvard instead of in a place that was more in line with their skills of their study skills and what they had learned in high school actually ended up backfiring in many ways. It, it caused a, a, a depression. And, and many of them, and you know what it's like, Rabbi Yosef, you, of course, ascended the ladder. But how about a student who thought that he could do well and goes to yeshiva, and we know one of them, or many, who went to places, and they weren't uh, the, 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 the bell of the ball. They weren't on top. And because of that, had they gone to a, a different type of yeshiva, a yeshiva that was a little bit more in tune with where their skills were, they could actually feel good about themselves. Instead, they ended up being pushed into a place that was not for them. And that causes a, a very deleterious effect. Rav Yaakov Kamnetsky, um, when he realized the crisis of the Russian kids coming into America, very forcefully called a meeting of the Malatzis, and they made sure to include many of the principles of some of the biggest schools. And Rabbi Yaakov says that we will do whatever we can to insert the Russian children into the yeshivas and schools, and it must happen. And every single school is going to have to take a certain percentage because, Rabbi Yaakov says, we're not going to let this challenge fall. That's a very interesting two and I think I'd like to take it further because Lamaisa, ostensibly in a place like Lakewood, or every school has to take a quota of girls or boys who otherwise wouldn't get in. Not because they're poor, because they're not uh, they're not the right families, you know. Okay, so well, first of all, let's talk about Rabbi Yaakov's demand. Now, Rabbi Yaakov, that was basically what Rabbi Yaakov was saying. Right. Rabbi Yaakov was saying, look, you're going to have to deny some of your donors' children, but these Russian kids will have a place. Now, did it work? Good question. I don't know. I think that it's a mixed answer. We have to think about what percentage of them were actually able to be uh, seamlessly brought into the fold and how many of them really became disenchanted and disaffected. We don't have a control group. We don't know what happened to take the same people, same situation, put them in yeshiva, or put them in a separate Russian or even secular school. There are no, no comparisons. There's comparative studies. But we, but we do know that there was such a disconnect and such a difference between the Russian mentality in a whole and the American kids that it, it, it was not a, the smashing success that Rabbi Yaakov hoped it was going to be. Let, let me give you another motion. We know that the Panevichirov, before Rav Shach in 1952, became the other Rosh Hashiva, the Panevichirov had a kpeda that a 25% of the Bochum and Bonovich had to come from the Mizrahi, uh, the Mizrahi schools. It was 75% would be from the, what we call the Haredish community, and 25% would come from the more modern schools. He wanted them. When Rav Shach came in, Rav Shach closed that off, and the, the number was almost diminished totally. Men, now, over here, you might have said that what the Bonovich was doing was, in a way, sort of against many of the from the Haredish kids, because 25% are going to have to go to uh, the, the Mafdal, the Mizrahi kids. So now in Panovich, however, it was actually, I think, a tremendous success because unlike, and again, this is going to sound a little non-politically correct, but I think the, the kids from the 
Mafdal families, although they didn't have necessarily the super background in, in, in Yeshiva Shalomdis that the Haredashi kids had, but they had the innate Kishreinis of Baruch Hashem, and their parents were, were either professionals, smart, progressive people, and therefore, as we know, you mentioned it last week, throw somebody into the Yama Talmud, and you'll see with the cup, they'll be able to swim. Again, the conclusion here is not such a politically correct one, but I, I, I let our listeners draw it. I, I don't think it's comparable. It's one thing when you're bringing the right, you're bringing the people back to where they should be. In other words, this Panovich, it was meant to, Torah was meant to shatter boundaries. And even though these kids, they weren't so mockbit on the Tznias and the other Inyanim of the Haredisha families, but the Panovich knew that these, you could vox and create G'dayim from them. The question here is, is affirmative action seems to be just making a statement rather than actually making a, a causing a benefit. Well, that gets back to one of Dessler's question about what kind of, how are we supposed to make uh, our institutions? I was looking at institutions for the elite and for the monam. And uh, I don't know. I, I think part of the problem is that the uh, place like Harvard is perceived as being stuck up and full of gaiva. And uh, well, some people think that gaiva and being stuck up is a tremendous mile in the job markets. So much of this Ivy League thing is just smoke and mirrors, right? Why should, isn't it unethical for only whites to have access to smoke and mirrors? Or are you saying because if it wouldn't be white, they wouldn't have the smoke and mirrors? You know, again, I, I think studies have shown that if you take, if you make it colorblind and you just take the test scores and you take other aspects of achievement, the percentage considering a certain medium test score for an Asian student, they had to score 1,500 or higher. And for the black students, it was somewhere in the 1,200. That seemed to be very much an abject, abject racism. Society, just like the Pondavich Revenue, people functioning at the highest level, working geschmack and contributing makes a great community, a great society. Does it redress all the evils of history? No. Again, you have an interesting chazal, which my friend Benny Sommerfeld mentioned to me. He's right? So there was a certain sense of being nicer to them. In other words, that the rabbeim should go out of their way to be more careful. In other words, even though they might be a strict disciplinarian in other ways, but the you never those they have something special about them. So again, that does sound a little, in some sense, uh, prejudicial. But I think that's more the reality that many times hardship and difficulty is really the breeding ground for ambition. It's the breeding ground for desire. It's the breeding ground for understanding how much Torah means to you. As a, as it's, it's not nezim zov ba'af chazir. It hasn't put, been given to you on a silver plate. I mean, Chazal keep on saying, why is it that so many B'nai Ashirim aren't matzliach. Why is it that many B'nai Talmidei Chachamim aren't matzliach? So again, Chazal seem to have understood that there's sort of this uh, this imbalance consistently, and that Torah is a very uh, precious, fragile thing, and there and you have to shake up the recipe often to get the right mix. And if you'd only cater to the to the elite and to the aristocratic, you those, those people would end up sitting on their laurels and end up not being machadish and not being true leaders. I, what's what's going on here is something completely different. And I think it yeah. really goes back. I, I Katanji Brown is right. I don't know how yes, this something America has a stain on it. I agree. 
there is this terrible history of slavery and Jim Crow, etc. But are these methods the way to correct it? Is forcing things, is stomping like uh, Godzilla on Bambi, is that the way to correct this? I don't know. I, I, I would say, again, my guts tell me no. The, what my guts tell me is that pushing these type of tikkunim, unlike Chazal and the Lishka Sagozis, pushing these type of tikkunim creates a, a sense of uh, animosity and pushback from the people. Okay, I want to talk to this one from another angle. When rebellion, when rebellion mayor Bloch was made of Rosh Hashiva in Tells in Lithuania, the Bokhan came in to complain. The Bokhan said, and they wanted to go on strike. They said, many of us know, learn, know how to learn better than rebellion mayor. Why are you making him a Rosh Yeshiva? This week, Rabbi Lezer Kahneman, the Nasi Yaponovich, who holds the power strings, he uh, appointed a new Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Gershon Edelstein's uh, uh, son-in-law. So, we know this, uh, yeshivas really work on nepotism, which is a form of affirmative action, isn't it? In other words, we prefer people not ugly. because... It's, it's I have ugly. to give a back up from suffering from this. Let's let's be honest, right? Right? <laughs> you're, so, you're, you're right. The, you know, we, we, we hold a Ponovich as something holy. And you're right. It, most yeshivas, including the ones I learned in, Mir, where, you know, again, is a wonderful human being. But would anybody have ever thought that he should be a Rosh Hashiva? In, in, right? He was a good-looking Chevronel. He was a Gishmakel. He was a, a, a personality. But, and, and but the you, truth, know, you know they say he married into the family. When the, the Chevronel Bachrim used to come to the mirror for a Chabur with Rav Chaim Shmulevitz. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the Rav Chaim Shmulevitz gave the Chabur in his apartment. Right? So in order to get to the Chabur, he had to walk through the front room. And that's where Chaim's daughter saw it. I'm going to go even further. You know, I was surprised, you know, that they, on two points, when uh, Rav Nassim Svi's son becomes Rosh Hashim, even in, in my uh, my other alma mater, Mir in New York, Rav Shmuel Bruni's son, Rav Elia Bruni, you know, Rav Elia Bruni, you know, becomes Rosh Hashim. So, again, this this a little bit has to do with Hilchas Yerusha Verabonis, as you know. Very little. Very little. No, no, in terms of actual sons, etc., there's a little bit of Zerusha Barabonis. If he's. Right, wait, we don't know that, that. If there's Zerusha Barabonis, it's Barabonis, not by uh, Talmud Torah. Right, because we all by Talmud Torah, Farkir, it's like the Gemara Baba Basra. The, yeah. We want Kinnasay from Tarbachochma and Farkir. But the, it, it, insofar as you know, there is this idea of, of, of Asrora, there is this sense that the Sroor should pass possibly. But yeah, I, I wouldn't call it a first. Listen, this is something which... It's affirmative uh, action for family members. It's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's affirmative action because otherwise they wouldn't be able to get in. Yeah, but of course. Does, <laughs> affirmative action means we're going to make society better by doing this. Does society become better because we allow this nepotism to reign? So does it, so my doc, we allow nepotism and we it's it's blatant and obvious and uh, so, uh, uh, affirmative action is at least somewhat lishma. You can have uh, a Rav Malkio running Lakewood, but the point is, is that Torah is such a great product that it's not going to be harmed. Even when Rabbi Yitzhak gets up there, and again, yeah, let them shut the lights on him. But the point is, the next day, everybody will be back in the Mismedish and Steiging and, and, and doing Haravanya. So as much as it upsets people that why should he be Rosh Hashiva? And let me even go further. Even the Yeshiva that I am sort of a, uh, 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 have a mania to know about, Revolosha, 
when Rechaim Berlin came, there was almost a revolution. They wanted, they, 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 they in Rechaim Berlin, you're talking here about a Veltzkoy, right? You, you look at his letters, you look at his Ksavim, you look at also a Pikeach, Shein Kamoyu. He really was a good, they loved him in Yerushalayim for his Aetzis, but the Bakram and Voloshin were going were gonna to revolt. You, you're going to put him as Rosh Hashiva? No, no, can't be. So my point is, is that the yeshiva is strong because it has Tera. Well, you're saying, you're saying interesting, Svara, which I, I hear. You're saying, let me paraphrase here. You're saying that yeshiva is really built on the Talmudim. And the Rosh Yeshiva are like a sniff of that. And therefore, the Talmudim are, the Talmudim are authentically good. It doesn't really matter how big, how clutch the Rosh Yeshiva are. Let me give you a Moshul. It's not as simple as that. Because you need to have big Talmud HaChobim in the Yeshiva. But even if they don't officially have the mantle of Rosh Yeshiva, they will still give their hashpa. The same way we know Rabbi Yosef, when Rabbah, was the Rosh Hashiva. Rabbi Yosef sat in the corner, but you think Rabbi Yosef didn't answer questions? You don't think he was Sinai in the corner? Of course he was, right? So you could be, you could have a Hashpa even if you don't have the official title. I would say, I saw a similar thing in Tells, where Rav Stein was the most gishmakil, tremendous, gregarious, gishmakil lamdin. And of course, he almost saved, you know, he was the one who made the trek through Europe and escaping and getting there, but he wasn't married into the family. So he couldn't be called a Rosh Hashiva, right? And you had Rav Isaac and others who were Adams who, who couldn't measure up honestly to Rav Chaim and Lamdis Bechlau. But Rav Chaim was still Rav Chaim, and all the Bakram knew that. And the Bakram used to come and speak to Rav Chaim. Ah, he's not officially the Rosh Hashiva, but they loved him more than the Rosh Hashiva. Because Taira you know who's big. And right, and even if, and we knew that even in Ere Yisrael, where I would run, we would run to, to speak to, to whether it was Shragi Kaviar or Shalom, whether it was other sorts of Nidochim, you knew, you knew where to run to. And, uh, and therefore, I think the nepotism is good. It's not good, it's terrible, but it's not going to ruin things. So you think, but we don't, affirmative actions do not ruin Harvard. Yeah, right. I think I think uh, I think affirmative action. Yale. Could they, the Harvard Yale were ruined because of other factors like the like the, the, woke, the, the woke theology, Wokeness, right? Exactly. But that's not to do with, with affirmative action. It's, it's a shaker to say that affirmative action was uh, somehow undermined. These again, the only was it's basically about two things: the avla that was done to the Asian students and the wrong-headed attempt to jackhammer to monkey wrench. A tikkun by pushing black no, students. I, just, I don't think that that's the shot. I think the shot is that they understood these Roberts, not, not, not talking about Clarence Thomas necessarily, but Roberts was of the understanding that it was a really affirmative action was a Russia. And a rush, the time for the Russia is fast, passed. Right. In fact, Sandra Day O'Connor in 2003 said, I've got to admit, it does sound like reverse racism. And maybe we have to re, we have to revisit this in a decade or two. And she was right. It was Kamat 20 years later. I think it was maybe 2004 she said this. Kamat 20 years later, they revisited it and they realized, okay, we did what we could. Society is going to have to, as I said, society will deal with the blight of slavery in some way. It's not going to happen by ramming down the, the, the white majority's throats or cutting off 
the, the air supply to the Asian students who are working so hard. There's got to be some other way. Uh, but it's, it definitely cannot come with a stiff arm in the face and cold water thrown on you and shaming you and shunning you. Why don't we say that the whole notion of providing scholarships to sports athletes who are, are usually bumbling idiots is also unjust? Good question. So, good question. So one of, one of the slurs for this is that sports in colleges was, this is a fiction, that sports in colleges is a way to create a tremendous morale and unifying force within a university. That if the team is a successful team, if the team wins at least a sufficient amount of games, that the students will all gather together. They'll all come on Saturdays to the big stadium. There's a team spirit. So it's, it's to the college's benefit that there should be athletics and that, the, and that the people should have pride in the school in their athletes. So this was all, this is all part of a, of, of a sheker, but you can see how it was dressed up as some sort of something positive. And yes, if there's a certain amount of scholarship money that, and, and remember, the scholarship money is given by the, you know, by sometimes the alumni who, 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 who love what they got from the school. Do they realize that that scholarship money is going to be given, you know, to the six, the six, three, you know, defensive end, you know, coming out of high school, who was like an all American prospect? There was an, another idea here, eventually, that sports scholarships will help. And again, this is, again, it's not politically correct to say, but it will help the black students who excel in sports. And therefore, that will, again, be a way that we could bring them into the places of higher learning. That's also Schrecker. Well, especially because they didn't have to go to class. Right, right. right. That's especially the they didn't have to go to class, right? Especially, right? Even though, I have to say, Schools like Notre Dame that you just visited in, in South Bend have a very strong demand that you have to keep a certain GPA in order to, to to keep the scholarship and to stay in the school. Okay, maybe that's exceptional, but the real, the, obviously, the real truth is that the the schools make lots of money off sports, and therefore they they give the scholarships to sports stars. So, an Emerson, an Ivy League school, they talk are not allowed to give sports scholarships, as far as I know. And I think University of Chicago, which had an amazing football team, did away with it because they decided it became too big in our Zora. So uh, affirmative action exists in many different ways. I'm not saying that it's time is not over and maybe it's not over, but to, for people to say affirmative action is just uh, unconstitutional, it's not so opposite. I look, I, I, th- I, I, I applaud your attempts to find parallels here. And I also applaud, of course, the fact that you are, we are, so, you're so interested in the, uh, what's happening, of course, in the highest sport of the nation as we enter, not the dog days of summer, but as we start, it's July 4th, and then we have Shabbos Batamas in three weeks. At least we have something to talk about. But I do, I don't want to end today without, again, recognizing, first of all, of course, uh, Abel's and Iman that allows the, me to continue these tete-a-tetes with Rabbi Yisrael Gabriel Belhaver. Remember, even though you might be hearing this post July 4th, <laughs> nothing goes better on the grill than the Abel's and Hyman products. The second thing, of course, we want is that we are trying our best that these conversations should work for you. They have to go through, again, it doesn't sound like it, but our editors and our producers cut out enough that to make us sound better, to make the conversation really 
be appealing and to really make a difference for you. In order for this to keep on going, again, we, we ask you uh, to reach out to us and, and just give us some support. If you've been listening to Risla the Rice for almost four years, I think you'll recognize that we are trying our best to put up a quality product in order for this product to continue to grow and advance. Your help is needed. So we can, we can use your affirmative action. <laughs> Affirm us. Yes. There might be other ones that have support of the big guys. Become a member. Become a member of, of, of Vote for Change. Okay. We'll be back next week. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 